This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com. You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about the psycho-spiritual and psychosocial aspects of -of end-of-life care. You can find our podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes and any platform you listen to the show from. And now, here are your hosts, Joe and Saul. Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I'm Saul Ebema. And I'm Joe Newton. Uh, today we have a special guest. You know, it's been a long time since we, we had a guest in the studio. And Chaplain Kimberly, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, uh, today I want us to just start the show a little bit different. Let us just share. What have you learned? Uh, what maybe what caught your attention in the last two weeks? I'll start out. It's been very interesting to be able to look at the world of hospice from my perspective. And in fact, Kimberly and I were talking before we came on air. Um, the thing that I see that in the last two weeks that has really been very prominent is the number of folks that are now being brought onto the hospice services, I think, throughout uh, because of, you know, the pandemic is now kind of, we hope, settling down and people are actually going back to doctors and they're a little more sick than they ever thought they were until they get there and get all the testing done and whatever else. I mean, our our census has grown. Uh, I would guess probably good 20, 25, 30% in the last month or two. So you've noticed uh, a spike in hospice admissions? I, I, see an, I see a growth. I don't see a spike yet. I don't, I don't think it's just going to stop now and level off. I think it's going to continue because people are slowly going back to seeing their docs. And they will then find out, oh, uh, this isn't good. What are we going to do? And uh, hopefully our doctors are aware of what the services that we have available for them. But also it's going to be very much a real challenge for families. And we, and we as clergy, uh, as chaplains, uh, we've got to be there for them. Interesting. Uh, Kim? Yeah, I, um, I would agree with all that. And I would also, um, you know, say that I, I'm hearing more and more from families that um, it's important that, to them during this time that they're able to uh, be with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, I think sometimes there's a little worry that they'll be separated, like uh, families with the patients. And um, it's... Uh, they're looking for support, and it's uh, good that for hospice, all of our care team members can be there for the patient and the family. And it's almost like a wraparound theory, I call it, where we all come together. Yes. Uh, nurse, CNA, social worker, chaplain, and uh, just to provide that extra compassionate care um, in uncertain times. Well, the thing that I, I will add on to that from my own pers- under my own experience has been that people have been afraid, and they still are afraid, to have their loved one go to the hospital or go to a rehab center or go anywhere because they're just so scared they'll not be able to see their loved one again. And uh, I think that's going to stay with us for quite a while. You know, I, I, for me... Uh 
I learned something new uh, this week. Uh, I've been in hospice now for almost 15, 15 years, and I thought I'd seen it all. But, you know, part of hosting a show like this, we get books from authors. And yesterday, a book arrived from an author. The book will be published in January uh, next year. It's called At Heaven's Door and uh, written by William Peters. I hope that's the final title. They still have a lot of edits to do until then. But in this book, he talks about a shared death experience. And uh, the book defines shared death experience as an occurring when a person dies and a loved one, family member, friend, or caregiver, or bystander reports that they have shared in the transition from life to death or have experienced the initial stages of entering an afterlife with the dying. I had never had <laughs> anything like that. And then there, he interviewed about 800 people. And there's a story here that I read of um, a daughter uh, who was called into the hospital because her father had a heart attack and is dying. And they took her to the little hospital waiting room. So while she was there in that waiting room, immediately she was transported, you know, uh, into this, you know, uh, and in, in her subconscious, she was transported into this beautiful place and uh, beautiful flowers, beautiful lighting. And then she sees a beautiful house and there were big house, big mansion, and there was a lot of commotion and people were preparing. And then she heard that they were preparing a big dinner for Walter and Walter was her father. So she stood at the gate watching what is happening in the big house. Then she had a rush of wind just bypass her. And that was her father. Then she came back into consciousness. And a few minutes later, the doctor came and said, you know, we are sorry. We couldn't save him. And she's like, I knew he went to the party. But she actually accompanied him in that initial experience of dying. I had never heard of anything like that. Well, I had a similar experience to that, Saul. Oh, really? Yes, I did. Before I was before I was clergy, before I was in my official role as a chaplain, before I served as church, I was volunteering for a hospice, and I went. I was asked to to uh, visit and help a young thirteen-year-old boy as his grandmother was dying in, his, in their home. And I would stop and visit with him, and we had fun, and we tried to, I tried to help him along the journey. And one day, I just had this feeling. And I was uh, with my very young daughter, who was, I think, three or four at the time, and we went to visit the home, in the home. And I walk in the door, and my little active little three- and four-year-old daughter sat down in a chair and just sat there. And I'm like, that is strange. That is unusual. And then I walk into the bedroom, and the grandmother was actively dying. I mean, near death, imminent, all those words. And so I stood there, and I'm with the family, and they see me there, and I, they'd seen me enough times to know that I wasn't a stranger. And I just sat there, and I'm just like, okay, what do I do now? I feel useless because there's nothing that I can do at this point. And so I stayed there for a while and just was a presence. You know, I look at it now and I say, I did the right thing. <laughs> I stayed there and I didn't run away because it, it was really unsettling at the time. And so 
eventually I just excused myself and I went home. And I was in my home and I was doing some of my uh, husband duties. I was vacuuming with one of the loudest vacuums I've ever heard. Mm. And I'm standing there vacuuming in the, in the dining room. And all of a sudden I hear in my mind, in my heart, I'm free now. And not a minute later, probably within 30 seconds, the phone rings. And I pick it up and, hello, uh, Joe, she just died. And I, my response was, I know. Wow. To be part of that, and I still get chills from that experience. And it's that happened 35 years ago. Wow. And I've never had one since. He interviewed about 800 people around the world. Yep. At first, when it happened to him, he thought maybe this cannot be just me. So he started to do research, and actually, you would have been part of that. I could have, I would have never loved to have had that, but shared death experience. Uh, it is quite an eye opener. And, and, and you know, the, the thing about it is, it was like, it wasn't scary. It's beautiful. It is. It was just a, a, amazing to me that that type of thing happened to me. Well, why me? So you were at heaven's door, my brother. Oh, I've been there before. Yeah, it's a great place. Don't 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 be afraid to go. Wow, and but we have a guest here. Oh, <laughs> uh, Kimberly, uh, where did you grow up? Oh uh, yeah, I grew up here in the Chicagoland area um, in Lagrange. It's it's a um, southwest suburb of Chicago, and I've lived here my whole life. And every once in a while, I travel to another state for school or or work. But I always end up coming back home. So, what was um, uh, the spiritual background or faith of your family in your childhood? I I was. Um, Raised in a Catholic home, uh, I went to a Catholic grammar school. Um, did my first communion and confirmation, um, and then in high school I transferred to a Dutch Reformed high school. And um, but then for the for my church, it's right across the street from where I live. Uh, they had a youth uh, camp or something that they were advertising, um, and it's an Assemblies of God church. And so I started going to um, their youth meetings uh, and have been with them ever since. So uh, I'm now in an, uh, an ordained and ecclesiastically endorsed uh, chaplain with the Assemblies of God. So you move from uh, a Catholic tradition to a more charismatic. What, what was that transition like for you? Well, um, my Catholic upbringing is still very important to me. Like I love um, some of the things that I learned, learning about the saints, uh, the Lord's Prayer, things that I incorporate into uh, my everyday life um, still today. Um, going to Mass, I love Mass. But my transition to uh, more of a Pentecostal uh, um, 
churches, well, when I was at youth camp, when I was about 15 years old, uh, I had an experience where I was baptized in the Holy Spirit. (laughs) (laughs) So that just, yeah, uh, changed the direction. And um, now I kind of call myself an introverted Pentecostal because uh, Pentecostals are known for raising their hands and being very lively in their worship. And I still, uh, like, bow my head and close my eyes. <laughs> so I'm an introverted Pentecostal. <laughs> you got Joe cracking. You got me on that one, that for sure. I I I'm I could see how you could become by that, by changing and shifting from Catholic Catholicism to the Pentecostal. Uh, there's a lot of wonderful uh, rituals in both. Uh, I'm one of those active ones who, if if I were a Pentecostal, would be out there dancing and, and raising my hands and <laughs> and praising God as loud as I can because I I I'm a, I, I love uh, the black religious movement, if you want to call it that, the African American religious movement, which is very also charismatic, but also very uh, energetic. I mean, you you feel the spirit and all that, and I can see that. That part of you, but I, I would like to know more about what it was that drew you to this big change because it really was a big change, and and you, yet you've not left behind the other, which I which I, I applaud you on. Uh, but what? How is it that you were able to then integrate this and make this a really solid part of your theology? Yeah, I I think it was a journey that took uh, many years to develop. <laughs> um, it started actually with a crisis in my life um, when I uh, was that, around that age fifteen. I was uh, uh, going through some social issues um, at my high school, uh, which prompted me actually I I dropped out of high school um, oh. at the age of sixteen. And um, I was looking for a healthy uh, social circle that was different from my other social circle. circle. And when I found this youth camp, um, it was healthy um, in my mind. And uh, trans- uh, it was a healthy move for me also to transfer to the um, smaller Christian s- school, the Timothy Christian High School. But as I was going to church every week and hanging around these wonderful, wonderful people at my church, I started to learn about their theology and their history. They were also very pro-women in ministry. So when I felt called to full-time ministry, I had this question in my head, can I, as a woman, uh, serve in a leadership role in, in the church or even outside the church, um, because I grew up in a very traditional family where um, you know, my sisters, you know, they all stayed at home, which is wonderful, stay-at-home moms and stuff. And so I always thought I was going to be a wife and a mother, stay at home, and never really be a leader in any, any aspect, uh, wasn't interested in school or a career. And then I started to learn about... Um, the women in the AG um, and how uh, there was women missionaries and women pastors, and they really encouraged uh, women to get involved in ministry. Mm. Um, So 
I went on a missions trip to Liberia, Africa, and I was just praying um, during that trip uh, and asking God, can you please reveal to me? I don't know. I want to serve in ministry, but I don't know if um, uh, if I'm able to, because biblically, I didn't know if I was able to, because there's different interpretations of that. And when I was um, in Africa, um, I went to an uh, underground church in an all-Muslim area, mm. and it was led by a woman pastor. Her name was Pastor uh, Pastor Deborah, and she was on fire. She was anointed. <laughs> I could just tell. And when I was watching her, and it was the first woman I've ever seen preach, and mm. when I um, was listening to her preach, I felt God say to my heart, just, uh, you know, not audible, but just to my heart, I felt God say, um, you asked me if women are called to preach or to lead, and this is my answer to you. Like, I can choose anyone man or women or women to serve. And so uh, from there, I just, I felt like I heard from God and it was my um, invitation to step forward into ministry and into leadership. How's your family responding to that? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Well, um, when I first uh, started going to the Assemblies of God Church. My family, their first reaction was, uh, "Oh no, we think our daughter just uh, entered into a cult." <laughs> and so, of course, of course. <laughs> so um, they followed me over to the church, and uh, the pastor at the time, he was so nice. He invited my parents over for a Bible study at his house, and so <laughs> that's a no-no. <laughs> Oh, so they said no? Um, They said yes, actually. And they were just like so surprised um, to have this like um, intimate relationship uh, like with the pastors. Like uh, it it was different for them. And they uh, became, and also the other congregants, like we've never been to a small group before. And so um, that's when uh, they started uh, reading scripture and. also listening to, uh, who was it? My dad used to listen, I think, Greg Laurie mm. um, on the radio, and they started to just, just to grow spiritually. Um, so then my dad became the deacon at that church. Oh, <laughs> that was a quick family transformation. <laughs> huh? Yeah, and so, um, and it took it took some years for him to serve as a deacon, but um, um, so then... It's just very interesting to hear how, you know, when you say you came in from from a, a traditional Catholic family, and my my vision of a traditional Catholic family that I grew up way back in the '60s with was, you know, con- uh, confession every Saturday, uh, worship. I mean, mass. You know, if you were an adult and if you could make it every day, uh, but you made sure you were there on Sunday. Uh, it was, you know, for you to, for for your parent at that time to be able to be willing to be open to that change is truly uh, a, a very wonderful mark on your parents' openness to what God has for all of us. And that is just the opportunity to experience new things. And, you know, I just think it's wonderful that they they, they didn't just say, that's why I said, no, no, because a lot of families in the Catholic tradition would say, you're not going there. Mm-hmm. 
And then you had a real major fight in your hands then. That's why I think I see you in having both of these experiences, I think is absolutely wonderful you're, for the role that you're in right now as a chaplain. Yeah. I think it just gives gives you a, a well-rounded understanding of how hopefully these people are dealing with end-of-life issues, mm-hmm. and especially in their spiritual journeys and all. So now uh, we are at a part where your, your calling is confirmed, confirmed to you by God and accepted by your family. What were the steps now you took uh, to advance and grow in this calling of yours? Um, yeah, so... The next step for me was uh, to go to college. I didn't want to go to college. <laughs> I didn't want to finish high school. A lot of college. No college. college. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, I went to College of DuPage for like I don't know. I took my time there, probably like two or three years, and then um, I had a small group leader that introduced me to Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. And uh, at the time, I was playing soccer, and I, I wanted to play Division One soccer, so went to really? visit the school. Mm-hmm. Wow, that speaks to me. That's uh, right. Oh, <laughs> what position did you play? No, no. I'm a striker. Oh, okay. The number nine. So I was a goalkeeper. So, ah, yeah. all right. It was fun. Beautiful story. Continue. <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah, I visited. I, I I loved the Blue Ridge Mountains. They had Division One soccer, and I wanted to be a nurse. My mom was a medical technologist, and uh, so I kind of had the science background, um, learning from her, and took EMT classes. And so when I got down to Liberty, um, uh, I think it was my junior year, I heard a sermon, but it was on the Great Commission and the Great Command, uh, Great Commandment and the Great Commission. Mm. And um, and I felt like God was calling me to full-time ministry. And so I walked up, uh, answered that call. Um, and as a response to that, I remember my brother uh, had I become a pastor. He was a new pastor at the time. So I called up my brother and I said, well, what do I do now? Like, I'm studying to be a nurse and I just answered a call to full-time ministry. I don't know what I should do. And I prayed about it and I talked with it um, about it with my brother. And he said, just trust in God uh, for the next steps. So I um, what I did is I uh, switched my major from nursing to biblical studies, <laughs> and I graduated. Um, I didn't know what I was going to do exactly, and I uh, graduated uh, with a um, degree in religion. Um, but as you know, there's uh, not a whole lot you can do with a degree in religion. <laughs> so I was kind of lost after that. Um, I did a lot of odd-end jo- jobs waitressing, flipping burgers, cleaning homes, um, caregiving. Uh, I did uh, work at Visiting Angels as a caregiver, and that really opened my heart towards uh, hospice patients and just being with people uh, through their uh, th- through their walk. And from there I went to, um, I decided to go to seminary. With that, we'll take a little break and uh, we'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. 
It is a free nationwide peer support service, providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. I'm Sole Bam, and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We continue our conversation with Kimberly. Um, so which seminary did you go to? Uh, I went to Assemblies of God Theological Seminary in Springfield, Missouri. Yeah, how was the experience there? Because seminary can be tough and challenging. Yeah, it was um, It was amazing. It was hard, but it was amazing. So... Um, I never liked school, as I already mentioned. <laughs> so um, the hardest uh, year might have been actually my freshman year where I had to learn Hebrew and Greek. Mm. Or actually, I did Greek first, and I didn't think I was going to pass that. Um, but the spiritual formation at the school was amazing. I learned so much um, about um, about myself, I guess, uh, self-discovering journey. And my classmates, my professors were all amazing. I really loved it. So when I was there, I wanted to become a military chaplain. I was interested in the Air Force. Hmm. Um, But we had a spiritual, uh, I guess he was like a spiritual director. And he had talked to me one day about uh, switching over to healthcare chaplaincy. And at first I was I was very resistant or hesitant uh, because I had my mindset that I wanted to do Air Force. Um, but I thought about it and he pointed out that I had a, a healthcare background and um, everything that I was doing in my life prior uh, to seminary just kept pointing towards healthcare. Mm-hmm. So he um, encouraged me to sign up for my first uh, clinical pastoral education mm-hmm. unit. So um, uh, while I was still in seminary, I was uh, going through my licensing and ordination, and I came home for a summer, and I did my first C- uh, CPE, clinical pastoral education unit, at Good Samaritan Hospital in Donner's Grove. So uh, at this level, I'm looking at, um, it's, it's quite amazing how you start out with this dream of being uh, a semi-professional soccer player and try, <laughs> <laughs> then transitioning to being a military chaplain. And during your clinical pastoral education, how did these dreams converge for you to become a hospice chaplain? Yeah, um, CPE was... I think designed to be very difficult for oh, it students. Yeah, it definitely is. And I just loved it. Everything about it, I loved. I struggled maybe in in the very beginning, uh, like the first like you know two or three weeks. But I I just uh, learned that I was comfortable in the hospital setting. Um, I was comfortable with medical terminology. I was comfortable um, holding the hands of. Uh, 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 patients who are near end of life. Um, I think it was really hard for me 
in the emergency room that like I had no experience with. Um, but I, I just wanted to be there. Like I wanted to, um, I'm a people pleaser, I guess. So I wanted to help as much as <laughs> I could. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> um, and then it also like just through through my uh, daily prayers and devotions, um, meditating on like like how how did I get here? How I, I was a, a high school dropout at the age of sixteen. How did I? get to seminary and how did I end up in clinical pastoral education? Mm. Like it wasn't my work. It was God's work. Uh, Mm. He was moving the pieces and directing me. Like that's what I firmly believe anyway. And so um, when I was meditating, it uh, just a phrase kept coming to mind is a spiritual nurse. I had always wanted to be a nurse, like a medical nurse, but the uh, 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 phrase spiritual nurse came to mind. And I, um, so I, that's kind of how I view my chaplaincy role is uh, to be a nurse for the spiritual and emotional soul of a, a person, if that makes sense. It's so funny. <laughs> it's so funny that you say that because two weeks ago we had a nurse, uh, Sally Teasdale. Oh, yes. And she says she sees her nursing as her chaplaincy. Oh. <laughs> and now you see your chaplaincy as your nursing. So I'm like, that, that's quite interesting. But um, it looks like chaplaincy then chose you. What experiences within the hospital, uh, what stories or patient encounters within the hospital that made you feel I could do this for the rest of my life? Probably just being with patients and families and working and not wanting to leave. (laughs) Like, I feel like it's my home, you know, uh, uh, just the presence uh, of others and my presence of being with others. Um, I, yeah, that's where I want to be. Do you have a particular experience that either affirms so strongly what it brought you to this ministry? It could have been something in your non-religious life your secular life or your religious life? What what do you think that really just affirmed saying that this is what it is that I need to do? I would say um, one particular experience that comes to mind a lot um, is an experience I had when I was on that missions trip to Liberia, Africa. Um, I had um, I had gotten sick with malaria, mm. and I ended up uh, going to the hospital, and I was very sick, like uh, convulsing. Um, it was bad, and. When I was laying in that hospital room in an unfamiliar area, um, so far away from my family who were here in the States, and just feeling that sense of loneliness and uh, all the other emotions, fear, anxiety, uh, you know, uh, not only physically, but emotionally and spiritually, just not in a good place. And I had... um, I hope it's okay to talk about it on here, but... Everything's open. <laughs> okay. Um, I 
I had what I believe was a near-death experience. Sure. And uh, there was a point when I was laying in the hospital bed, it was probably like 90-some degrees in the room, but my body was so cold, I was freezing. And um, I couldn't talk, I couldn't move, I was so weak. And then the scary part is I felt like my breathing was becoming labored. And... uh, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, I think this might be it. I think that um, it's my time. And um, any breath could be the last. But in that moment, um, I don't know if I was hallucinating. I could have been hallucinating. Um, but I could audibly hear the prayers of other people praying for me. And those prayers were like in the room with me. And then um, I I call it like a thin veil. It felt like there was a thin veil at the side of my bed, and I saw just a glimpse, like a vision of um, of heaven, and it was beautiful. And so my eyes got fixed on Jesus, and I started to pray, and it's like, this place that like I see a vision of, that's a place I want to go. It was bright, it was light, it was warm. And I felt God say to my heart that uh, he said, uh, it's not your time yet. You need to go back home uh, to your family because you still have work to do um, at home and to take care of your family. And <laughs> I said, well, I'm cold. <laughs> so if I'm not going to heaven, um, you know, uh, can you please warm me up? Because I am so cold and I couldn't ask for a blanket. And at that moment, I felt just like a, a, a presence, a touch, a blanket of like warm sunshine come over my body. And uh, at the same time, energy came back into my body. And I sat up in my hospital bed and I started throwing up. But it was a good sign because I had energy back in my body. I could move. Um, My body warmed up and I felt like, okay, I'm going to be okay. At the same time, Not at the same time, but like a few moments afterwards, a chaplain came to my room. (laughs) And uh, it almost reminds me of the book that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, This chaplain, he didn't stay long. He just poked his head in the room. He asked me what I was there for. We had a little conversation. And um, he said, that he was going to be praying for me and that um, he really felt like I was going to be okay. And just that simple conversation in his presence uh, presence really gave me uh, a lot of comfort and strength um, and hope too. And I just remember thinking like, you know, how, how beautiful, it was just a small moment, but how beautiful and precious that moment was. Did you ever see him again? Uh, no. Mm-mm. Okay. Got a story to share with you. My nephew, terribly ill. We thought he was going, just like you, dying. He tells the story that he was in his hospital room, and he called it a Guido-looking kind of guy came into his room. Looked at him, said, you're going to be okay now. Walked and left out the room. Never saw him again. We don't know what God looks like. The other thing that I want to make sure that, that, you know, you were hesitant to share with us this story. 
my firm encouragement to you with your hospice patients, because they will find, as I do, a great deal of care and understanding of your experience and how you will be able to share with them in a more intimate fashion than you ever thought you could possibly do. So don't hide it. It is real. And I know there are people say, oh, you're full of crap. Pardon me, my expression. But that is so real. And it's really powerful uh, how everything works that we started with this. <laughs> uh, but you have this, uh, you almost crossed over, you know, uh, this share, this death experience. I've done that myself in my own life as well. And um, yeah, so I'm glad. Uh, so the more you share those experiences, like I'm learning a lot from reading this book at Heaven's Door, uh, because many of us don't know these things. And and it's really transformative to hear people share uh, their journey. Uh, with this, we'll take a little break and then we'll be right back. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. I'm Sole Bam, and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. You know, um, every episode when we come in, we really don't know what to expect. <laughs> uh, in my life, I've always been curious to talk to someone who's had a near-death experience, and here you are. Uh, you just, before the break, you shared your um, this amazing experience. Uh, how has that changed you forever? I think that it changed me because I no longer, I no longer fear death or the afterlife in the same way that I did before. Because I have such a positive view of um, of the dying process and the afterlife. Because mainly because I know that I'm not alone. I feel like prayers are with me, God is with me, other people are with me, and it's um, it's really a it, it can be a beautiful experience. I'm very curious about your near death experience <laughs> and your therapeutic value in end of life. How is that experience helping you become a better chaplain? I'm curious about yeah, that. so um one thing too that I hear a lot from patients at the end of life is when uh they do see something or experience something, and I'm able to sit at their side and listen and uh empathize and really like uh, I had one patient I remember she was saying that she was seeing angels um you know uh in her room, and so then i would i I asked her uh and I do ask this a lot like um you know how, how does that make you feel because whatever they're seeing, I want to make sure that you know is it a positive thing or are they scared? Is it a negative thing? And uh, this particular patient, she's like, no, like um, it, it brings me comfort. And, and so then I could ask her more, like, why does that bring you comfort? Mm. And she's like, because I know I'm not alone and that mm. I'm going to be home soon. Mm. And um, I said, well, why do you think that they're there? 
And she said, to make sure that I know that I'm going to be okay, is what she said. Um, So I think it was a reassuring thing. But just to be open, uh, not to question um, anybody on what they're seeing or uh, to brush it off, but to really embrace what Mm. they're going through because that is their truth, you know, mm. and... I think your experience, I think, gives you that depth. But people have not had that level of depth. It's easy to judge that the passion is delusional or the passion is so confused and disoriented. And if they've heard that a lot, that they are just like, oh, that's just not there. But you to come in to affirm that yes. by your own experience will just, you know, your relationship has just, you know, solidified immensely. Just by saying, you know, I know what you're talking about. Uh, I remember my one of my first deaths in hospice work that I did, near death. I went to the home, and the family is there, and the, 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 the mother is in the side room there in the hospital bed, and they said, well, she's ready. And I said, do you mind if I talk to her? Sure. So I go in, and I, I talk to her. And I mean, this woman is very weak, very near death. And but yet still willing to to try and converse, and I w- went to her and I said, you know, I'm Joe, I'm the chaplain. I just, how are you doing? Oh, I'm dying. I'm fine. You know, one of those type of things. I said, your family tells me you're ready to go. She goes, yes. I said, and it just came popped into my mind. Have you seen heaven? She goes, yes. And I'm like, okay. Now where do I go? And I said. So what did you see? And one word came out of my mouth, out of her mouth. And I tell this to many of my patients, the story. I said, for those who might be considering thinking that it's not, you know, they don't know what it's like or whatever. And she say, I said, they gave, she gave me one, one word, peace. And I share that with many, many families and, and, and patients. And to see the, the sigh and the relief. And, I mean, of course, the woman died the next day, and the family was a good death. And it just, you know, that that happened, you know, nearly at my, my beginning of my hospice ministry. And it was incredible just to be able to have that conversation, first off. And for her to be that trusting in me. You know, when we say chaplain— Chaplain people will sometimes say, oh, I'm going to die tomorrow, or I'm going to die right away. And then there are others who say chaplain, and it relieves them. So, you know, we need to leave that at the door, too, that, you know, sometimes they they think that we're the, you know, we're the grim reaper. And <laughs> we're going to just take their life away from them. Instead, we're hopefully, we're there to give them life. That's beautiful. You for sharing so, uh, yeah, sure. what what do you like about your calling as a hospice chaplain? It, yeah, it's uh, it's like almost my my mission, I guess, from God. I feel like that, yeah, that's what I, I I like how gives me a sense of purpose and meaning, and I like to create meaning with patients and families too. Um, And almost like what Joe was saying too, with uh, just 
being in those precious moments and how much meaning that can bring to uh, patients, families, and us too. Because mm-hmm. like I go home at the end of the day and I'm blessed, you know, more than I probably blessed them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's powerful. What have you found challenging? Um. Hmm. I think just sometimes just the details of chaplaincy work, like charting or something, <laughs> is probably the most. You are most, a real chaplain, <laughs> then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> just let me do my work, and you, somebody else do all the paperwork. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, being with patients is more. Rewarding than in front of the computer <laughs> typing your documentation. Yeah, absolutely. I'm still working on my um, smart goals, my measurable goals. Oh. Like uh, it, it baffles my mind sometimes, and so I have to practice that. That's to me is challenging to put it into words because there's so much that we do that like sometimes I don't have words to describe it. You know. How would you define your theology of care? Because for me, um, when when I look at uh, caring for the dying, um, I have this imagery of the wounded healer. Mm-hmm. Um, my life experiences, um, the wounds within me, the pain I've gone through, um, I allow my patients to touch some of my wounds and in the sense... Um, we, we heal each other, that a visit uh, doesn't mean that I'm coming as a Messiah to offer healing, but I come in as a wounded companion, and then we talk, and in the process we minister to each other. So the imagery, the idea, or the concept of the wounded healer uh, that's how I look at my theology of care. Joe? I, had, I don't have the wounded healer aspect. I have more of relationship. Uh, if I don't have a relationship with patient or patient and family, uh, and we, you know, that's why it's sometimes difficult for me to go in. And if I have just an individual who is in a facility who has Alzheimer's who can't talk to me, I have to make myself appreciate their soul so that we can connect in some fashion. That's how I look at how I can be in my theology of my hospice work because none of us, and that's part of what the pandemic did to us, want to recognize the fact that we have people who died alone and not having that contact and all that. I I found that so injurious to everybody. Mm -hmm. And that's why I feel so strongly about it that, that that's part of my theology is that I have to be in relationship and develop that. And I enjoy doing that so much. And Joe also has this dog that makes it really easy <laughs> to form relationships. <laughs> She's good. Yeah, for me, God is a God who is with us and just present. And one of my favorite Bible stories is the woman with the issue of blood. Mm-hmm. And just imagine how isolated and alone uh, she felt because of her uh, 
um, condition. But when when she met Jesus, Jesus didn't see her as a disease or an illness or an issue. He saw her as a person, and he made a connection with her to her soul, to her spirit. And um, so when I'm doing chaplaincy, I just think that if, you know, I could just be— be a little glimpse of what, you know, uh, hands and feet of Jesus and just be present with patients and con- and then to connect with them to their soul and see that their heart and their soul um, and who they are and learn about them, learn their stories, you know. Um, so that's kind of how I look at it. What are your final thoughts? My final thoughts is just that I'm so grateful to uh, be here with you guys and um, have uh, uh, new friendships. So I look forward to connecting just with other chaplains um, to share stories and to know that I'm not alone in my chaplaincy and there's other chaplains out there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So thank you. Absolutely. Blessings to you. Thank you very much. That was our guest, uh, Kimberly. Thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting Studio in Joliet, Illinois. Audio Hive Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production. For more information, you can find us at audiohivepodcasting.com. 